you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, uh, turn to Mark chapter 11. We come to a story, uh, an incident in the life of Jesus uh, that is very familiar to us. It's one that our attention comes to uh, every year, the Sunday before Easter, Palm Sunday. But I'm afraid in our familiarity with it, we often lose uh, the significance of what is going on in this incident in the life of Jesus as he is entering in Jerusalem. Uh, As I was thinking about this, uh, it came to mind how many assumptions and how many cute little stories we hear from other pastors that we bring to the text that aren't born by the text. As we see and read it, we come to understand uh, that the original hearers understood it and viewed what was going on rather differently than we do. Mark chapter 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage, and to Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied to the, at a door outside the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying that colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's go Lord in prayer. Father, as we turn our attention to this text, uh, I pray uh, that we be able to see it with new eyes, uh, to understand uh, uh, the amazement and the incongruity, as it were, of all that is going on. That your son, the king of kings and lord of lords, the most important person in all of human history, was met with such meager attention as he came not to simply set up a kingdom in Jerusalem, but to lay down his life for his sheep. May we be able to understand uh, the present reality of your kingdom as we long for the second coming of Christ when he comes not on a donkey to bring peace and salvation but to gather us to himself and bring a final judgment to human history. And as we consider the second coming of your son, we pray that if there are any in here this morning uh, who are not prepared for that day because they have not come to know the salvation that is found in Christ, uh, we pray uh, that they would come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior this day. For this we pray in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. 
So here, uh, as I mentioned, uh, the, the, the clock uh, slows down as Jesus enters into his final week of life. Uh, he, as he prepares to enter in Jerusalem, he understands uh, that this coming into Jerusalem uh, is full of prophetic purpose as he sends his disciples in to bring a donkey to him that he would be able to ride into the city uh, as he prepares to and his final week of life. And we understand in light of Zechariah chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 9, that this was uh, a prophetic fulfillment. The Lord had promised that this was how uh, the uh, final king, uh, the one who would be David's heir, would ride in to Jerusalem. And so in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, the Lord instructs his people, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow, and I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. And so with the understanding that he is coming in to usher in his kingdom, not in the way that the crowds or his disciples understand, but through the blood of his covenant, through laying down his life on Calvary's hill that fateful Friday, Jesus sends the disciples ahead. And uh, th th this is uh, uh, evidence of Jesus' authority, his divine power, because you have to understand this was not something he could set up ahead of time. He has been away for a while as he has been doing his ministry tour of Samaria and the surrounding parts. And Jesus, with his supernatural knowledge, knows exactly where this beast of burden is, and his authority is such that the owner is going to be willing to hand it over to the disciples who the owner has never set eyes on with simply the instruction that uh, the Lord, the master, has need of it. And so the disciples do exactly as Jesus instructs them. Uh, they find the animal tied to a door outside in the street, and as they're untying it, uh, some of the bystanders say to them, what are you doing untying the colt? Very natural uh, response. You know, you see somebody getting into your car, uh, turning on the ignition. What are you doing with my car? Now, you probably wouldn't be inclined to hand your car over if they said, well, the master has need of it. But here, the onlookers hear that the Lord has need of it. They told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. Even from a distance, uh, Jesus' authority and power uh, were enough for these people. And we are 
met with the humility of Jesus' kingdom. Remember, Zechariah 9 said that he was humble. There is nothing boastful, there is nothing prideful about entering in a city on a donkey. Of all the animals that you could march into a city on, a donkey would fall pretty far at the bottom of the list. Donkeys aren't known for being dignified animals. And you think of the Old Testament. When kings would ride into a city, they would, well, I don't ride on something that's conveys their magnificence. And when you think of the Greco-Roman context uh, that Mark is writing in and that Jesus is ministering in, riding in a city on a donkey would not be something that would gather the attention of most individuals. If you came riding in on a donkey, they'd think you, that you're a peasant or a pauper, uh, that you didn't have the resources to get something dignified like a horse. And yet, that is what Jesus is riding in on. Riding in on a colt, the fall of a donkey. Uh, displaying his humility as he comes in. And as he's riding in, uh, the, the crowd has some understanding because they have been observing the ministry of Jesus. They understand that Jesus is indeed the son of David, that he is the Messiah, that he is the rightful king of Jerusalem. And they greet him. And I think it's important for us to consider who this crowd is. You, you might have heard uh, some pastors try to argue, well, this is the same crowd that days later would uh, call for Jesus' death uh, and rather than Barabbas's. Well, none of the gospel writers tell us that. None of the gospel writers tell us that this very same crowd is the same crowd that called for Jesus' blood. Rather, knowing what we know about the context of the time, uh, we understand that this is not the type of crowd you would think would be uh, uh, those front and center to welcome in a king. You know, you think a king coming to a, a city or a village, it would bring out the dignitaries, uh, the cream of the crop of the village. You think uh, if a the president or the governor visited Harrodsburg, it would be the most important people, the commissioners and the city councilors that would be first in line to meet him. But that is not so here. We understand in light of the totality of the Gospels that those who are the most prominent in Jerusalem were plotting Jesus' death as he is making his entrance. They hated him and they wanted nothing to do with him. The chief priests, the Pharisees, the scribes, even Pontius Pilate would all be uh, willing participants in his death. Rather, the crowd that is coming out to gather him is a mixture of those pilgrims who have been uh, marching in with him, as well as the poor of the area who are standing on the street side begging. Every other respectable person would have been about their day's work while this is going on as Jesus is marching in. But the pilgrims who are making their way in for Passover and the poor of that area are flocking to welcome the king. And there's an important principle behind that because those that you would expect to welcome somebody of Jesus' stature is the son of David. They're actually threatened by his coming. He threatened the status quo. 
the, the Jewish leaders, uh, uh, the priests, were happy to be complicit under Roman occupation. And that was one of the arguments given for handing Jesus over to death, that he threatened the status quo. Uh, they put a uh, pilot over the fire, as it were, telling a uh, pilot, you, you can't recognize him and allow him to live because he's claiming to be the son of David. He's claiming to be king. We have no other king but Caesar. And as then, so it will be when Christ comes again. We know that when Christ comes again, uh, the, those uh, uh, who prefer the status quo of this world, will not welcome him in open arms. But we understand uh, that what Jesus' disciples and the crowds did not understand. There are two comings of Christ. The first coming, he indeed comes humbly. He ends his life coming into Jerusalem humbly on a donkey. But when he comes again, he will not come in humility. He will come in strength and power to usher in what the crowds were hoping for in that initial coming. We find that in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. John sees heaven opened up and behold, not a donkey but a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And as he is coming in, uh, he is not met with this royal procession of the pilgrims and the poor. As he comes again, we understand that he will be met with hostility that he will deal with fully and finally. That all the nations will be gathered against him and they will be destroyed. The crowds did not understand what we do in light of Jesus' death and resurrection. Their hope, their expectation was that Jesus as the son of David is coming in to sit upon his royal throne. That Caesar and all those who were part and parcel to the tyranny of this Roman occupation would be done away with once and for all. Uh, they did not realize, as Jesus would uh, tell Pontius Pilate uh, at his trial, that his kingdom was not of this world. Had he intended to, had it been his purpose to establish an earthly kingdom, he, he could have then and there, without the help of the crowd, called 10,000 angels to his side. Yet the crowd gathers to welcome him in. Verse 7, and they brought the cult of Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Now, think about how jarring this is. 
You have Jesus who is, as we know and as the crowds believe, King of kings and Lord of lords. And rather than roll out the red carpet, as it were, people are throwing their worn cloaks on the ground and cutting off branches. This is far from a royal welcome. You know, we don't have royalty in our country today, but we have celebrities that act like they are, and you think of the award shows, they roll out the red carpet. Could you imagine an award show where the homeless of that city uh, took off their jackets and laid it on the ground for the celebrities to come in? It, it would be something jarring. And what we have here is jarring. Because rather than receiving what would be perceived in the culture as a dignified royal welcome, he is being welcomed by the rabble of town. And they're welcoming him as best as he could. They throw their cloaks down in respect to him, cutting off branches in respect to him. And as he is marching in, they're shouting out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are expecting a salvation, but the salvation that they are expecting is not the salvation that they would receive. They are expecting, as Jesus is coming in, the final confrontation with Rome. That Jesus is going to deal with Pilate there in Jerusalem, and from there push Rome out and re build the kingdom of David. See, the people of God had felt like they were in exile since the exile, even after the 70 years ended and uh, they were returned to the promised land and rebuilt the walls and rebuilt the temple, as it were, to a lesser degree. Uh, they understood that they didn't fully feel like that they had come home because every period of their history, they had been under foreign government. Be it the Chaldeans, or the Greeks that followed them, or the Romans after them. Uh, they had never known uh, their own government. They had been under the oppression of others. So even back home, they didn't feel like they were home. And so they were longing for Messiah to come and end their exile. And after three years of Jesus' teaching and miracles, they understood to a degree that he was the Messiah. He was not the Messiah they were expecting. We see some of that tension even in the early parts of Jesus' ministry before John the Baptist's death. Uh, John the Baptist sends his messengers to Jesus asking, are, are you the Messiah or we'd expect another one? And Jesus uh, points out the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, the blind receive their sight, the deaf hear, the lame walk. He omits freedom for the prisoners because John would not experience freedom from captivity. He would die a martyr's death. And so the crowds and their misunderstanding of what Jesus' mission was welcome him, celebrating his coming. Verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. We know how the story goes. We know that his kingdom was far greater uh, than their limited understanding. 
the promise of one coming meekly and humbly into Jerusalem in Zechariah chapter 9 uh, would not be satisfied with Jesus simply coming in and setting up his kingdom in Jerusalem. What was promised was something far greater than that. Again, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be broken, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. They were expecting a victorious conquering king, but he was coming to bring salvation, not simply for the people of Israel, but for us, for the nations, for the Gentiles, so that he would speak peace to us. And he has brought in, indeed, a kingdom that goes from sea to sea. There is not a country where the gospel has not been proclaimed. There is not a continent where Christ is not known. And one day that will be known in its fullness when he comes again. When the new heavens and the new earth come, uh, the whole world will be filled with his glory. Yes, his kingdom is coming. His kingdom is present among us. We are part of that kingdom, but we have not come to know its fullness. And thankfully, the crowd's expectation was wrong. Because their greatest need wasn't for a king to give them salvation from their Roman tyranny. Their greatest need was for a king who would bring them salvation from sin. Their greatest tyranny, their greatest problem was themselves. Their bondage to Satan's sin in the world. And Jesus comes as a king, righteous and having salvation. He comes humbly because he is going to lay down his life. He is going to lay down his life so that we would have peace with God. He is going to lay down his life so that we would know salvation. Whereas we righteously, rightly deserve the judgment of God, he came humbly because in that week he would bear our judgment. He would bear our condemnation. We see uh, even here in this Palm Sunday account uh, the truth of what Paul said of Jesus in Philippians. Paul tells us in Philippians that having, he instructs us in verse 5 of chapter 2, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He humbled himself. He made himself of no reputation. Whereas he was king of kings and lord of lords, he humbled himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. That's a summary of Jesus' entire life and ministry. One of humility and self-emptying. He humbled himself, uh, taking on human flesh. Being born as a babe, held by his parents. The one who created heaven and earth was held by Joseph and Mary. 
and he humbled himself further. The one who had rightly come at the end of human history, as we saw in Revelation 19, coming on a white horse. The one who deserves to sit on a throne, riding in on a donkey. But he would humble himself further in that week. He would humble himself to the point of death. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Theologians describe Jesus ministry is one of humiliation or if that was true of his ministry in general that is true of his final week as he sinks lower and lower under the judgment that we deserve so that he ends the week not on a donkey but in a borrowed tomb he ends his life and not on a throne but on a, a cross it was through his cross that his kingdom would come. Uh, the early church fathers described it as a throne. and uh, We missed it on our uh, uh, stylized cross, uh, but there would be a little bench on a cross for, for those who condemned to pull themselves up a little bit and kind of sit uncomfortably as they're pulling up and down, struggling for breath. And the early church fathers saw the cross as his throne. The cross was where the glory and dignity and majesty of Jesus are seen. The crowds were expecting a king who would show his majesty in sitting on a throne. But wonder of wonders, they receive a king like, unlike any other who displays his greatness, not by ruling and conquering, but laying his life down for rebels. For sinners like you and I. And as we consider this story, this episode in the life of Jesus, we should be thankful that we have a king unlike any other. Think of the history of humanity and all the kings that have come and gone and all uh, the governments of the world. And only one laid aside the glories that he had before and humbled himself as Jesus did. Only one king in all of history died for his rebellious people, and that is our king. And as we think of this, we might be tempted to think of Jesus in the same terms, meek and humble and mild. That is who he was then in his purpose of carrying out salvation. He is never to be humbled again. He has been given the name above every name. He will never be humbled again. He will never be held to ridicule again. And he is coming again. That is our great hope. What the crowds did not understand was uh, that his kingdom would come in its fullness, not in his first coming. His first coming would be to bring salvation for us. His kingdom would come fully and finally after the blood of his covenant. And his second coming, as we think of the reception that he received in that first coming, the humble reception that he received, 
Let us be reminded that when he comes again, he will be received and seen as the conquering king that he is. Because he has already conquered on the cross. He has conquered our greatest enemy. He has conquered our sin. He has conquered our hearts if we have placed our faith in Christ. He has given us a new heart and taken out our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. And so as we think of this crowd, what they looked upon, we hope for. We hope for the day that our king comes. And he will. And Mark concludes this day in the life of Jesus with this in verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And as we'll see, Jesus did not like what he saw at the temple. And as the rightful king, as the son of David and as the son of God, he had the right and the responsibility to pronounce the judgment that he has. And as we look to his second coming, we understand that he has the right and the responsibility to pronounce the judgment that is to come. He is indeed coming again. He is not coming to lay down his life again. He is not coming to be humbled again. He is not coming to be despised again and mocked and ridiculed. He is coming to usher in his kingdom. Are you prepared for that day? Are you prepared for the day when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of God? The fact of the matter is that the the so-called respectable people, they weren't coming out to greet Jesus and welcome Jesus because they did not want the kingdom that he was going to bring. A kingdom that would bring reversals. And when we turn to Revelation, we understand that the same thing is going to happen again at the end of history. The people that the world idolized and looked to. Revelation tells us uh, that they're going to throw themselves in caves and holes and uh, beg that the earth would crush them lest they see the coming king. It's a good reminder that While things are the way they are right now, they won't always be that way. There's coming a great reversal when Christ comes again. And the question we all need to ask ourselves, are we ready for that day? Is Jesus' coming kingdom good news to us? Or are we just happy with everything the way it is? And if we're just happy with everything the way it is, the way the world is... And his coming will be a sore disappointment. And for many people, it will be. You think of those in power and their response to Jesus. One of conspiring. I think of uh, rulers and those in power authority around the world. It will not be a great day for them when Jesus returns. What is the call upon our lives, uh, like uh, that great Christmas song, Joy to the World, is uh, let our hearts prepare him room. That we might sing at his coming and be glad at his coming and not fearful of his coming. The fact of the matter is, any fear that somebody has of the coming of Christ is indicative of the fact that they are not where they need to be in regard to Christ. 
I was reading uh, William Perkins, and he says uh, that uh, he makes the analogy that uh, when somebody owes someone money, uh, they'll try to avoid them as much as possible. You know, think about it. If you owe somebody $5,000, you're not going to be chumming around with them as long as you owe them that $5,000. You're going to try to avoid them until you pay it off. And if you don't plan on paying it off, you're definitely going to avoid them as dearly as possible. The fact of the matter is, lost sinners are in a great debt to God. Every day they transgress his law and incur a greater debt. And the only way that debt can be forgiven is through the life and death of Christ. And outside of Christ, lost people want to have nothing to do with God. Because they want to avoid the one that they are indebted to. Those in power and authority, they want to avoid Jesus. Their hearts are not prepared to welcome him. Because they believe that avoiding him avoids their guilty knowledge. So let us go, Lord, in prayer. Father, we thank you for this word. We, we thank you uh, that there is indeed not just one coming, but uh, as we await it, a second coming promised of your son. That uh, for his first coming, he indeed is righteous bringing salvation for us that we see in his first coming in this the final week of his life his humiliation his humiliation uh, that is the basis for our salvation that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God and as we think of his first coming and anticipate his second coming Uh, We pray that our hearts would indeed prepare him room. We pray that if there are any in here this morning whose hearts are not prepared for that great and awesome day when Christ comes again to bring his kingdom, that today they would receive salvation, that they would see their need, their debt to you, and that rather than avoiding you, that they would come to you through your Son, who has come humbly, so that we could receive adoption as your children because he has laid down his life. He has shed his blood, the blood of the covenant for us so that our sins would be forgiven and so that we could look at the day of this world and its kingdoms becoming your kingdoms as a great and joyous day. And we pray that if there are any not prepared, that they would. And that we who are believers would have this day before our eyes and that it would give us motivation to make much of Christ in all of our lives. For this we pray in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.